Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, continuing in our study through Paul's epistle to the church in Philippi. I invite you to please turn there in your copy of Scripture as I read the text. And if you notice in the sermon outline, I want to point out to you that the first point of the outline will be significantly longer than the last two points. Uh, actually, the last two points are very brief, as, as Paul sum, sums up his um, exhortation. And I'm letting you know that about the sermon outline so that when we get to the second point, uh, you don't grow weary and lose heart thinking that we're only a third of the way uh, through the sermon. Um, Philippians chapter 4, beginning of verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There's an account in the Gospel of Mark in which one of the Jewish leaders asked Jesus which commandment is most important. We read what happened in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered him well, them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is most important of all? Well, Jesus answered to this religious leader is, was instructive, and, and it's instructive to us as well this morning. Jesus answered by essentially quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Notice in Jesus' answer that he includes our whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you shall love God with everything you've got. And that includes, as we see, it includes our minds. To love God with our whole mind, loved ones, involves loving him with the seat of, of our intellectual life. It, it involves thinking in a way that pleases God because it's in accord with his word and, and with all that we believe about him. And that's what the Apostle Paul is instructing us in our passage this morning. Because notice as he says at the end of verse 8, Philippians chapter 4, he says, think about these things. Let your mind dwell upon these things. And uh, the word think there in verse 8 describes more than uh, just giving a passing thought to, to something, but it means to give careful thought to a matter. It means to consider it at length, uh, to ponder it, to let your mind again dwell on something for a long time. And so when the Apostle Paul lists these virtues, 
that describe a pattern of thinking that is pleasing to God, notice that the word that he includes before each of the virtues is that word, whatever. And that makes this list uh, comprehensive. It, it expands each of these virtues so that, that many of these descriptions and these virtues take on a larger picture, uh, as we'll notice as we uh, go through each of them. And so it's not like Paul is giving us a complete list of virtues, but he is giving us some ways to help guide our thinking so that our thinking might be in accord with God's word and might be in accord with what is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. And so all of these virtues combine, loved ones, to remind us that our thoughts should be focused on things that God approves, that God loves, that God uh, commends to us. And when we fill our minds with things that accord with such virtues, our actions will change. Uh, our behavior will change because our thoughts, we know, directly affect our behavior. So let's consider each of these virtues to get a better understanding of, of what we are instructed. Uh, Paul first says that we are to think about whatever is true. We're taught here to set our minds on truth. Now this virtue is rooted in God himself, who is truth. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, uh, God uh, twice in that verse identifies himself as the God of truth. And Jesus, we know himself, said that he is the way and the truth and the life. And so uh, focusing on things that are true is necessary for us as Christians because we are people of the truth. We believe in God and, and in his word. One theologian explains that uh, Paul when he was writing this, he would have primarily been thinking about false gods and about false religious practices. Uh, this includes any false doctrine or perversions of the gospel. We can't embrace these things that are true unless we at the same time we know loved ones reject what is false. We find truth in the scriptures, do we not? That's, that's the source of all true Christian knowledge. And so we need, we know, to be in the Word. We have a wonderful example of this in the Bereans, the Bereans in the book of Acts, who, after they heard Paul preach, we read that they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true, to make sure that what Paul was preaching was in accord with God's Word. And so God's Word is true, and so we must read it and, and study it, memorize it, and seek to live in accordance with it. Beloved ones, you know, we also find truth in God's creation. You know that God is the maker of heaven and earth. And when you and I, when we use our sanctified minds to study creation, we learn more about God. And so when we learn about things like biology and chemistry and physics and, and engineering, uh, we're learning truth because all truth is God's truth. So we are to think about whatever is true. We also learn in, the, in this passage that we are to dwell on whatever is honorable. 
by honorable, Paul is referring to something that evokes a special respect. This word is used to describe one of the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. And it's used to describe uh, older men in the church, that they are to be honorable. Uh, some translations use the word noble or, or a worthy of respect. You may recall that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul instructed us to follow the examples set by Christians who are worthy of imitation of those believers in our lives who love the Lord and who set a good example for us in the faith. And, and we see them, we see the way they live their lives, and, and they're honorable. And so we want to aspire often to, to live like those people that, that we highly respect, those brothers and sisters in our lives. They are worthy of our honor, and so we are to think about such people, and we are to think about the characteristics that, that define their lives, that evoke a particular respect. We are also, we read to contemplate whatever is just or right. Now this virtue describes a person who upholds the laws uh, in a society or the norms of a society. It's a person who respects the law and who lives in the right way. Uh, when Jesus told the parable of the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20, he said that the master of that vineyard offered to pay the workers a just or a right wage. He wasn't trying to cheat them, but he was living in a right way and he was conducting his business in a just and right way. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul instructed masters to pay their bondservant whatever is just, whatever is right. And so as Christians, we, we have God's word, God's word which teaches us what is just and right, and so God's word is our standard for rightness and for justice. And our civil laws in America are largely based on, on biblical principles. And so, you know, we should rejoice when we see justice triumph in our courts uh, and in our political system, when we see there's justice and, and rightness in our neighborhoods and, and workplaces. And we should at the same time be angry when we see injustice and, and unfairness, when people don't do what is right according to what the scripture teaches. So we are to think about whatever is true and honorable and just. And we're also told to concentrate on whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. This is the fourth virtue that Paul lists. This uh, virtue describes moral purity, and it's often used to describe sexual purity. Paul, for instance, said that he desired to present the church to Christ as a pure virgin. He's talking about presenting it to Christ free from defilement and, and pollution, free from sin. Concentrating on, on whatever is pure then uh, means that we must not give our minds over to lust and, and to thinking about sexually immoral things. You know, as you're reading this virtue, as we're looking at it now, you might be thinking, uh, hey, that's easy for Paul to say because the internet wasn't around back then. And, and pornography was not as easy to access. Paul had 
and has no idea how difficult it is to avoid thinking about what is sexually explicit, to think about whatever is pure. And loved ones, if you're thinking that way this morning, uh, you have no idea what Rome was like in the first century. Because in the Roman Empire, uh, prostitution was legal, prevalent everywhere. Uh, There were pornographic images uh, featured among the art collections and the homes of of the wealthy. It was common. Roman religion condoned sexual immorality, encouraged it. Las Vegas was pretty tame compared to uh, first century cities like ancient Corinth and Rome. It was just it was just as easy for a first century Christian to fill his or her mind with what is sexually immoral as it is for a Christian today. And so Paul says to the Philippians and by the Holy Spirit we, we read this today and we are instructed in the same way today fill your mind with whatever is pure. Reject the sinful ways of unbelievers and of those who are perverse and seek instead to concentrate on what is pure. We're also to focus on whatever is lovely. And this is an interesting word because it doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. But when this word lovely is used in um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe Queen Esther's face. Queen Esther's face is described as, as being beautiful, as being lovely. And we know that she was lovely, not just because she was pretty, uh, but she was lovely because she loved God. And she put herself in great danger in order to save God's people. She put her life on the line in order to honor God and to save God's people. And so the things that are lovely then are, are things that are beautiful to look at, things that bring us delight and pleasure. Uh, And they bring us delight and pleasure because they are beautiful in God's sight. We are to think about whatever is lovely, and next we are also encouraged to think about whatever is commendable. This is the sixth virtue. This virtue has the idea of something or someone who deserves a good report, someone who is admirable. We all know people in our lives who we would commend to others. One of the joys that I have as a pastor is that I often am asked to write letters of recommendation for the students applying to schools or for people going into the ministry. And one of the questions on the forums is usually something like, do you recommend this person based on what you know about them? And I usually answer, no way. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I usually say, yes, I commend this person to you without hesitation, without any reservations. That's what Paul is is talking about here. Whatever is commendable, whatever can be recommended to others. And then as as we look at our passage, notice that Paul uses two phrases that begin with, if there is. You look at verse 8. He says, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now that phrase, if there is, means these things are present, things that are excellent and things that are praiseworthy. They're present all around us. We just have to search 
for them. So we can say, you know, Paul is, is, is saying, uh, since there is excellence all around, and since there are many things in God's creation that we enjoy and praise God for, uh, let us find them. And let us think on these things. Let us give, uh, meditate upon them and, and give them careful thought. Let us consider them at length and ponder them. Let us let our minds dwell upon them for a long time. And Paul says that when we do this, we by default exclude what is not pleasing to God. Because if we're finding those things in God's word and in God himself and in God's creation that are pleasing in God's sight and that are according to what we read here, then we are excluding what is not virtuous, what is not pleasing to God. We're excluding the bad by default because we're searching out and thinking about and meditating on the good. It's like perhaps going to a buffet and you fill your plates up with what's good and healthy and by doing that, you, know, you don't have any room for what is unhealthy. Right? You just get three big plates of salad and then you walk by the waffle bar and you realize, I don't have any room for, for anything that's going to uh, be bad for me. Right? Kent Hughes, he describes it this way. He says, the sheer weight of Paul's six positive demands, uh, these things demand the rejection of negative input. Uh, listen to their inversion. This is the opposite. Finally, brothers, whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is uncommendable, if there is anything not morally excellent, if there is anything unworthy of praise, do not think about these things. See, Paul's command calls for a life of conscious negation. Thinking as we ought to demands the discipline of refusal. What we see in our passage then, friends, what we see in our passage is that God cares about our minds. We look at the whole of verse 8, we see that God cares about our minds. Because we read in the Bible that when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we are born again, we are made new creations, and that involves us being given the mind of Christ, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. And so God cares about what we think. He doesn't just look at our actions and what we do, but he cares about what we're thinking about on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. You know that the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day, they didn't get this, right? They didn't understand this. They, they seemed to believe that as long as their outward actions were conformed to the law and to what they believed God wanted, their thoughts and, and their desires were unimportant. It was all about what they were doing. But we know that the Lord Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. He pointed out that God cares about what we think. And that's why we're taught throughout the Bible to not let our minds be controlled by evil and by what is not pleasing to God, but instead to seek what is in conformity to, to God's own goodness. You know, God speaks to us this morning as he spoke to Cain. Remember what he said 
to Cain, who was angry with his brother and who was thinking wicked thoughts toward his brother. God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, and it's for me this morning, loved ones. But you and I must rule over it. That's what God instructed Cain. And so we must rule over those things that would seek to hijack our minds from thinking about what is pleasing to God. And so the Lord exhorts us throughout Scripture to sanctify our thought life. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we read during our second reading. If then you have been seated with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then listen to the instruction. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And the same instruction is we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, again, the, the exhortation to uh, sanctify our thought life. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect will. As Paul here, as we read these passages from Colossians and Romans and think about them, the question comes up, is Paul advocating a kind of a bury your head in the sand approach to life. Just ignore reality and just focus on what's good. Right? Don't pay attention to, to all the bad things in life and the difficulties that arise. Just, in a sense, bury your head in the sand. Is that what Paul is, is advocating we do? Is that what he's instructing? Not at all, loved ones. What his point is in these verses is that you and I must wisely choose to fill our hearts and our minds with what is godly. Things are noble, things that please God, and, and to actively reject those things that are vulgar and disheartening. In the same way, again, that we're so careful, we're so careful about what we eat and drink because we know that our diets affect our health and they affect our energy. We must also be just as careful, if not more, about what we consume with our eyes and with our ears to make sure that it is in conformity to what is pleasing to God. And so by commanding us to think about what is pleasing to God, we learn that God cares about our minds. He cares about what we think. And we also learn that we have control over what we contemplate, loved ones. We have control over uh, what we allow our minds to dwell on. There's a quote that's attributed to the reformer Martin Luther. I couldn't find the source of it, but everyone attributes it to Luther. And apparently Luther said, I can't prevent birds from flying over my head, but I can prevent them from making a nest in my hair. I can't prevent birds from flying over my head, but I can't prevent them, I can prevent them from 
making a nest in my hair. And, and Luther's idea there is that just because a thought might come to us, be it lustful or covetous or impure, doesn't mean that, that we need to dwell on it, contemplate it, or, or think about it for a long time. Because loved ones, God has given us his spirit. He's given us his spirit who is sanctifying every aspect of our being. And by the Spirit's power, we can, we can take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the way that we can do this is by putting into our minds what is pleasing to God, the things that are true, the things that are honorable, that are just, pure, lovely, commendable, things that are excellent and, and worthy of praise. And as we contemplate these things, as we spend more and more time dwelling upon these things, even those, those passing evil thoughts, you know, they will become less and less frequent. David Murray, he writes, in an age of multiplying and diversifying media sources, so many sources of news and of information, Murray says, we don't need to accept being force-fed the junk food of what is evil, ugly, and distressing. Instead, we can and we should feed our minds a media diet that is based or biased toward what is good and what is beautiful. Again, the things that please God. So you and I, loved ones, we have a choice at every moment. And every choice is reinforcing our desires. That's what Paul is, is getting at. And what's wonderful, dear friends, is that God has given us, God has given us so much beauty to see and think about. We are surrounded by beauty. We are surrounded by things that are virtuous. You know, it would have been cruel if God would have given us this command to think on these virtuous things, these godly things, these things that please God. If he would have given us this command and then not filled his creation with them. But our Father has, hasn't he? You know, we live in a fallen world, but we are still surrounded by beauty and by loveliness and, and by truth. Our world, you can describe it, our world is like a, a ruined castle. But the remains of the castle are still there. And every now and then, you glimpse something of the transcendent, of, of the eternal, and you see the goodness and the beauty that was there, that is there, and that will be there when the castle is, is fully restored. We know that creation will be renewed, it will be restored, but you know we still get glimpses of God's beauty as we see the loveliness of, of his creation all around us. There's so much beauty, loved ones, that we can fill our minds with. Jonathan Edwards wrote after his conversion to Christ uh, that he began to see the world differently when he was converted. He writes, uh, the appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, moon and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water and all nature, which 
used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and so in the daytime spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. What Edwards is getting at, loved ones, and what Scripture is teaching us, is that we don't have to fill our minds with the junk that the mass media feeds us. There are sources of beauty and of virtue everywhere. They're in our relationships. We see God has blessed us with wonderful, beautiful relationships in our families, in our workplaces, in our church. We find this beauty in a delicious meal with family and friends in good poetry and music and books and our fellowship with church members and working hard as unto the Lord at our jobs. We find beauty and worship on, on the Lord's day and especially in God's word. We find it in the excellencies of his word. The psalmist writes about the word of God, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. There's so much delight to be found. And when we fill our minds with what is virtuous, loved ones, and what is pleasing to God, it will affect our actions. It will affect our behavior. When Paul writes in verse 9, what you have learned in Philippians chapter 4, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, practice these things. You know, he's referring here to the fact that his own mind had been captivated by Christ, that he himself had the mind of Christ, and it was evident in his actions, in his godly behavior. And so what what Paul said and did in his life, he could confidently, confidently say to the church and to you and me this morning, follow me as I follow Christ. His thinking affected his behavior and he was calling others to follow him as he was modeling the Christian life. And the result of all this, loved ones, as we think about these things and as we practice these things, is that we will know the peace of God. The promise there in verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. We will know the peace of God, the peace that God gives. David Murray explains Like many of us, the Philippians were habitual worriers. Their minds were always racing from one unresolved anxiety to the next. But Paul holds out the prospect of an unimaginable and unsurpassable divine peace that will guard our hearts and our minds. It's a peace that patrols the entrances to our emotions and to our thoughts. And the way to enjoy that peace patrol is to change our brain diet, what our minds feed upon. In other words, says Murray, if we let what is false, uh, what is offensive, what is dishonest, what is filthy, what is ugly and loathsome into our minds, we might as well sign up for a course on how to be hyper-anxious, how not to be at peace. But friends, loved ones, if we contemplate whatever is true and whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is 
commendable and, and excellent and worthy of praise, if we think on these things and practice them, God promises that our souls will be calmed. Our minds will become less anxious and our hearts will know his peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we desire with all that is within us to have a thought life that is pleasing to you. We know that while others cannot see what we are thinking, you can. That everything is laid bare before you. And so we ask for your powerful spirit to work in our minds, to cause us to desire what is good, virtuous, true, and what is pleasing in your sight. May the mind of Christ our Savior live in us from day to day by his love and power controlling all that we do and say. This is our prayer, O Lord. This is our desire. Hear us as we pray to you, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.